Welcome to the In The Box Tour. We're here to blend the worlds of CrossFit and PT, so we're going from gym to gym and talking all things CrossFit. I'm Dr. Mason Hanawi. And I'm Hannah Briel, and today we're here with Dr. Chris Gregory, lover of donuts, less than six-minute workouts, and stretching. <laughs> you knew that was coming, right? You know me so well. How are you? Wonderful. Alright, so first question I ask everyone, that you're just going to have to bear with me on this, why why CrossFit? Why CrossFit? Um, if CrossFit. Yeah. Why? I actually found CrossFit completely by accident. Um, I wandered into a box and didn't know what it was. How? Um, Where? It was on Daniel Island, so yeah. it was CrossFit Discovery. And at the time, the owner of the box, his wife, who teaches hip-hop, my six-year-old son was taking hip-hop classes from yes. her and they had some sort of party at mm. the crossfit gym so i go in to pick him up and i think i had on a shirt that said musc physical therapy or something and robert the owner of the gym started talking to me because he saw my shirt he's i was talking about how i was just going to the wellness center at musc and you know walking in and kind of like what should i do today and then i would not stay very long and it was just not very effective workouts and he said well why don't you come work out here and my question was well what, what is, is here? This? I'm in an empty room and you I see a few barbells in the corner. But it was, you know, that was seven or eight years ago. Um, you know, now a box would look very different. There'd be rowers and ski ergs and air dines, and, but there was less equipment. So it really was an empty room with just a few barbells. Um, so I started coming to CrossFit then and it was easy for me because, number one, I didn't have to think. Someone told me what to do. You probably love that. I love it. <laughs> once I get home from work I don't want to have to make decisions yeah. I do much better when someone tells me what to do um, but it also gave me the opportunity to do things which I'd done years before the Olympic lifting you know the deadlifting things that you don't see in the typical gym not a lot of people dropping you know bars from snatches and cleans and even deadlifts so That's I got to bad. do some things I really enjoyed doing and I tolerated the things I hate doing that I wouldn't do if I programmed for myself. So it, it Which is longer than six-minute workouts. Yeah, that too. Exactly. Um, but I mean, let's be honest. How many of us are going to be doing burpees if we program for ourselves? Oh, Besides Mesa. No, that would be all that Mesa would do. Right. It would just be burpees um, for like whatever. 20 minutes. So it, you know, it makes me do the things I should probably do that I don't enjoy. And I get to do the things that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do in another gym. So it worked okay. for me. And okay. it was physically the closest building commercial building to my home. This is the closest thing they could I had to get pass to. it every single day going everywhere I went. So, so oh, wait, and now? And now, I mean, it works for me for the same reasons. Um, I, you know, I, I've, I've gotten to know the guy who owns the gym, obviously, very well. And I, his programming fits me well. Um, I get to do the things I enjoy doing. I can still continue to do the Olympic lifting. I still tolerate the burpees and, and the mm -hmm. other things. Um, but it also, it's efficient for me. I, I know when I go in, I know when I'm going to get out. I know how it fits within my day schedule. I, I know, I know what time the classes are and which one you know, fits with teaching or work or whatever. So it works for me. And it isn't that it's CrossFit, the marketing thing. It is a form of training that I, you know, believe in that I, I guess is similar to what I trained at at one, trained like at one point, but it just fits, you know, the way I believe it should be. Yeah, so you mentioned that you had experience with Olympic lifting and all of that. So tell us a little bit about that. So my fitness background. Yes. My fitness well, from birth. From birth. <laughs> oh God. Came out high jumping. Probably. Yeah, I guess we all we all are, are willing to do things more that we you know we kind of come naturally, right? If you're good at something, it becomes more fun. Um, 
Well, so through high school sports, which was, you know, there was your basic go to the weight room. We had, a, actually in hindsight, we had a really good strength and conditioning coach in high school. Didn't realize at the time how good he was, but you know, back now, yeah. it, is very, it is very rare. And the guy that, you know, absolutely preached progression the right way and made sure everybody kept up with it and charted everything. And I mean, he, he had it down. Nice. I look back, it's really kind of Where did you go to high school? Um, so I grew up in Metro Atlanta, just south of oh. Atlanta. Um, Clayton County is the is the county, but part of Metro Atlanta. So I had a good strength conditioning coach in high school, which you know introduced me to lifts, and so I was comfortable doing them. And I went to college to run track, um, and our our jumps coach at college uh, was a German guy. So you get some European guys that they grew up a lot more experienced with the Olympic lifts. So we were doing lots of cleans, lots of snatches. What events did you do? Um, so I went. I was recruited to be a multi-event athlete, so they were going to try me at decathlon. I tried it. Um, I had some, you know, I, I probably stand all of a little bit over 5'8", so I struggled with the heights of the hurdles when you get to college. Oh. Well, when the hurdles become 42 inches, the idea of a hurdle is not to spend a lot of time in the air. You want to get over it as fast as possible. You at my height, to, I've got to jump. Yeah. Right? So I, I was, you know. Um, Limited. I, I, I was going to, there was a, there was a <laughs> ceiling for me in the hurdles, right? Yes. Um, I was a good jumper and a pretty good runner. So I, I competed at, um, in the high jump and I ran the 400. Really, I ran on our four by four team. Um, and so I did those two events, um, but still training for jumps. We spent a lot of time doing, you know, explosive type training, power training, and, and the lifts came in there. That's so, awesome. um, I, so I, I did those through college, um, and then just enjoyed them, uh, when I got out of college and was going to your basic global gym kind of places, you know, I lived in Houston and I lived in Gainesville, Florida. And, you know, I just, I got away from them because I was going to be the only person in the gym doing them and it would kind of stand out. So I kind of got into the typical bodybuilding, if you will, kind you of lifting. Standing out? No. I know, really. So where'd you go to college? I went to University of Georgia. Oh, wow. Okay. So how'd you end up here? How'd I end up here? So I was at University of Georgia through bachelor's, master's, and PhD. What, which were, can you run yes. through this? So my bachelor's degree, uh, I had a double major of exercise science and chemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, my master's and PhD were both exercise physiology. And uh, the lab I worked in, we did muscle physiology. So we worked taking muscle biopsies. We did MR imaging, looking at muscle, whether it be in recreational athletes, spinal cord injury, um, different populations. So muscle physiology. At that point, PT schools were transitioning to this DPT. Um, and there was a need for faculty members that had doctoral degrees. Because if you're going to award a doctorate, you, you need to have, have one, one, right? Yeah. Um, and so actually the NIH had put up some money to recruit people who had PhDs in related areas, which was me. Um, and so I, got, um, I knew the lady who was the chair of a PT program. And she convinced me to go to PT school after I had a PhD. Jeez, and so two years of PT school um, in Houston, Texas, at Texas Women's University. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, love it. Yes. I, I love telling you. Not, I thought it was great when I was being recruited to go to Texas Women's University. I wasn't actually the only guy there, which was disappointing. Yeah, darn. Um, oh, was that just the name? Which was disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I was married. My wife went with me. Um, okay. Right. It is just a name in a way. Texas Women's University is actually in a town called Denton, Texas. Their PT school is in Houston, which is about four and a half hours away from Denton. The only thing in Houston is their PT school and their nursing school, or at least at the time it was. So it was, it was very much removed yeah. from the actual Texas Women's University. Um, so, yeah, so. Sure. School, yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I would have loved it. Um, 
So University of Georgia, then I went to PT school out in Houston. Mm -hmm. From Houston, I went and did a postdoc fellowship, so a research fellowship at University of Florida, which is in Gainesville, Florida. After that, I stayed on as um, faculty in the PT school there and a research scientist at the VA hospital in Gainesville. And then from Gainesville, um, in 2010, we moved here to Charleston to take a job at MUSC. So you like the South? I'm very familiar yes, with the South. the SEC, it sounds I, like. I, I am an SEC. Yes, my family um, has the SEC covered, whether it be my wife from the University of Florida, my yeah. mom at Mississippi State, my oh. dad, Auburn. Um, we've got Do a lot of Do you have an covered. LSU? You should get one. We don't have an LSU. I've been to Baton Rouge. That's okay. as close as I can So come. you're the Georgia fan, though. I'm a Georgia fan. Do you have any Alabama fans? Because those got to go. No, like I said, <laughs> okay. I've got to – my dad's an Auburn grad. Okay. So no, we'll take Auburn. We, we don't sure. have any Alabama fans Good. necessarily. Good. So um, you were in school for a total of how many years? I just need to sum this up. Yeah, this is a lot of school. <sighs> um, so let's see. Bachelor's, master's, PhD was a nine-year run at Georgia, and then two years of PT school. Yeah, so yeah, at the time when they transitioned to a DPT, there was actually another school that wanted me to come to do my PT degree there, but they already had a DPT. And for me, I was like, you were like two no. years versus three, I'm going two yeah. years. Yeah. Because you already I had a doctor. What was the end goal with getting your physical therapy degree? So I... Um, master's, I guess, at the time. Correct. My goal was always to to have a job to research. I mean, that's what I trained to do. And I actually had, when I was recruited to go to PT school, the idea, obviously, was to increase faculty. So I had to sign mm -hmm. a contract saying I would take a faculty job when I was done. That you wouldn't treat patients? Well, that I... If I did, it would have to be part of my faculty okay. assignment. Yeah. But it, the, the goal was to put people into academic institutions as PT okay. faculty. Or um, did you ever treat patients? I did. Um, so through grad school, I, I mentioned we did some research uh, in individual spinal cord injuries, which was at Shepherd Center in Atlanta. Oh, cool. That's awesome. My last clinical rotation in PT school was at Shepherd Center. I was very familiar with Shepherd Center, so I set it up and did it there. I actually stayed at Shepherd Center for... A few months and worked at the end of my affiliation. Um, so right after I graduated, uh, I actually stayed there because my oldest son was being born. So we oh. stayed in Atlanta until he was born. Um, so I worked at Shepherd for a few months, and then when I went down to Gainesville uh, to do my research fellowship, I worked in outpatient orthopedics one day a week for like the first year I was there. Um, How so long have you been in Charleston or at you know, USC? Yeah. Let's see. What is today? The 16th. So 10 days ago was nine years. Okay. Wow. Well, happy I'm anniversary. In my I'm in my 10th year now at MUSC. You feel old? I feel old in a lot of ways. <laughs> so I feel like you're Thanks for young. bringing that up, Mesa. You've got a lot done. done. Really, really yeah, exactly. exactly. So did you, like, I, most people I know, especially in this field and exercise science, don't want to do research. Like, that's not, that's kind of hard to find, I feel like, especially if you're, we're in like exercise science, like what made you want to go the research route? Yeah, most people want to be PTs to see patients. Or like do more hands-on or exercise science because they were athletic and want to work with athletes. Like what was your idea with that? I, pro I think I got into exercise science as a major, just my background in sports and enjoying that sort of stuff. Um, the guy that taught my exercise physiology course, and it was interesting because there were three exercise physiology professors at Georgia's. It was just the semester I took happened to be that this guy taught. Um, I really related his personality and started working in his lab as an undergrad. Um, enjoyed what he did. Um, I, I wish I could say it was some sort of intuition and, you know, a lot of thought. But I distinctly remember 
when I was but it about, wasn't at all. It wasn't at all. <laughs> all the way through, I can just say blind luck that I ended up where I am. Um, I remember us having a discussion. Maybe slight intelligence. No. Okay. Uh, we're being honest here. I already told you I'm the Texas women, so we're just <laughs> And Georgia. Um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> no, we were actually sitting up doing a research study. We were doing some imaging, um, and we had to use the magnet at a hospital, so we had to work off clinical hours. And it was right before the holidays. I think it was my senior year. And um, we were just sitting outside waiting for one of the scans to be done. And he said, so what are you doing when you graduate? I was like, I don't, I don't know. I really haven't decided yet. Um, you know, I was six months away. I was forever in my world. And uh, he said, well, you ever thought about grad school? And I, of course, you say yes to some extent. And act like <laughs> you're, you thought about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've got, I've got to say no. It's a conversation stopper. And I, I mean, I enjoyed the stuff they were doing in the lab. I mean, the work I was doing, he said, well, have you ever considered grad school? I said, yes. And he said, well, if you, you, know, if you want to do a grad degree here, you know, I have a spot. I didn't know what that meant, but I acted like I did. Yay. Um, yeah, it sounds oh my awesome. Gosh. And then, and a lot of programs, you, you, you go right into a PhD. It's just kind of a five-year deal to get a PhD. We had a two years for the master's and three years for the PhD, so they were separate degrees. Um, I, I realistically I knew whatever I was going to do, the, the graduate degree would be helpful. So um, I stayed on and did a master's, and when I stayed, I you know, more and more enjoyed what was going on. I actually looked at other places when it was time to do a PhD. Um, I actually looked down at University of Florida. Um, I looked out at Texas. Um, I just decided I liked what was going on, what we were doing at Georgia, so I stayed there. And what do you do now at MUSC? So now at MUSC, um, my primary appointment is in uh, Department of Health Sciences and Research. So my 90% of my job, I think, is research. What's the other 10? Uh, Modalities. The other, the other 10 <laughs> is teaching and service. For those that don't know, Pretending Chris Gregory to teach. has taught both me and Hannah Briel in PT school. Um, his favorite topic, modalities. That's right. Yeah, um, stretching. Yes, stretching we'll is number it. one. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. So I think on paper, so I have to have a joint appointment between the VA and MUSC. So I have grants at the VA, which means I'm a VA employee, VA hospital employee. Um, at MUSC, majority of my job is research. I do a little bit of teaching, so I have a secondary appointment over right. in the Division of Physical Therapy. What's your topic of research? Primarily, it's stroke recovery. So um, folks who have had a stroke, most of our research... I use exercise interventions for the most part. Originally targeted improving walking. Um, we've now shifted a little bit in looking at how they're still looking at interventions that uh, improve walking, but we're also looking at the effects of exercise and treating depression in folks who've had a stroke. But it's exercise-related studies. That's my background. So. Love it. So I have so many. You yeah. just do so much. This is your throat so how did you choose? How did you get into the stroke population? Coming from like exercise background, and then you kind of switched to the neuro world. How did that happen? Um, so I mentioned back in Georgia, we were doing muscle physiology research. We were looking, so we use spinal cord injury really as an example of disuse, right? This is mm -hmm. a dramatic change in activity, right? Someone gets a spinal cord injury, complete injury, below level injury. There's little to no uh, activity. So we studied the cascade of events that go on with atrophy, and we were looking at using, so we'll alluded to modalities, using e-stem as a resistance training approach to increase muscle mass in folks with complete spinal cord injury. So we would take biopsies, looking at the cascade of atrophy, treat them with e-stem, getting to muscle hypertrophy. So I had some experience with spinal cord injury. When I moved to Gainesville, I uh, was still doing some spinal cord injury research, some humans, some animal models. Um, when I joined the VA, uh, there were a lot of folks there doing stroke-related research. Yeah. 
honestly, the environment in Gainesville was set up to do stroke research. And if you look at the numbers, there's 75 times as many people that have a stroke as a cord as a spinal cord injury. A little easier to find subjects. Um, All right, so it's <laughs> a stroke. It was stroke. Um, spinal cord injury is still a very important topic, and it's still important within the VA. Um, so the short answer is there was just a really strong environment in Gainesville for doing stroke-related research. And so you just kept that up when you came to MUSC? I did. We still do a little bit of cord injury research. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some folks in, at MUSC that do it, um, but the majority is stroke. So I have kind of a loaded question for you, but maybe a segue. So I feel like you kind of have this very diverse background when it comes to healthcare. Like you've done athletic training, PT, PhD, you kind of have a lot of different perspectives. That's right. I was an athletic trainer at one point too. He I forgot think, about uh, that. Didn't you he? didn't mention that, but I knew that. Yes. That's right. <laughs> I did. I had that, I, I had that uh, ATC, certificate. Right? I had my ATC as well. Yeah. So just having all of those kind of outlooks on treatment, I feel like I would say you're a healthcare provider, even though you do research, still somewhat of a healthcare provider. Like, do you think that changes the way you approach things because you have such a broad background versus like looking at it from kind of one lens? I, yes, for sure. I, and I might even shift that a little bit. I think it allows me to participate in discussions with a variety of healthcare professionals. Debates that, or discussions? Yeah, yeah we stutter. Whichever way they go. <laughs> um, you, you know, but a lot of times, you know, having, you know, as you guys are done with PT schools, you can have discussion with PTs. You know, it's very easy for people to kind of blow you off and go, oh, well, you, you don't know. You don't have this experience or you don't have this or we look at it a certain way. And they're almost like membership cards in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you remember that a lot of places. <laughs> I, I'm, oh I'm members in a lot of places, all right? I'm in, uh, I don't know that I'm an expert at anything, but I've, I've got a little bit of experience. Jack of all trades? That's it. Yeah, um, yeah what's, the, what's the phrase? Jack of all trades, master expert. Of the master of none. Yeah. Um, Except the hydrogen. <laughs> you know, but there's, there's a little bit of a competing um, mindset between athletic trainers and PTs. There's some overlap, obviously, in their, in their practices. Um, and so having both of those allows me to kind of sit on both sides and maybe talk pros and cons of both outlooks. And I think maybe from the researcher to the, we'll call it practitioner, you know, I definitely have a different viewpoint than a lot. Of people, I don't. I'm not completely on the research side and say I only, I only, I can only tell you what shows up in the literature and therefore nothing else exists. But I can, but I also can talk to the practitioner and say, okay, while I don't doubt that this is what we see in the clinic, maybe there isn't evidence for that, or maybe there's some evidence that suggests it's not always true. So I can, I think I hover maybe somewhere in the middle, although. I, I probably do default more towards the research mind than I do the, the, the practitioner mind. Oh, for mindset. sure. Like, oh, is that evidence-based? I heard about your uh, your soccer program. How you always <laughs> want to make sure it's I thought evidence-based. I used evidence-based. I think <laughs> all I used, right. it's all performance-targeted. And that's still a pattern. And so I'll even throw one more kind of part to my background. When I was in grad school, um, maybe what made it easier for me to get through a day um, – was having a nice variety to my day. So I would sit in a lab that was in essence a biochemistry lab all day. And then I worked as a high school strength conditioning coach in the afternoon. And then, so from a biochemistry lab to a high school weight room is a, is a very different yeah, environment. Yeah, like you so get a little bit of everything. I so did. You don't get bored. I, I didn't get bored and it was, it was an exciting thing to do. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and so that, that contributes to whatever it is my... I want to know is. more about this... Um, post-stroke depression research because I know we talked a little bit I don't even know like months months ago about it and y'all were just getting started 
So I haven't really heard the update about that. Okay. Um, so the little bit of a background is, um, I think if people have gone through and even read on their own, but gone through exercise classes, they'll, they'll hear enough about how aerobic exercise has some powerful antidepressant benefits. And that's been established for a while, and they've even worked out some dose dependency of it. Um, that said, if you talk to practicing psychiatrists and psychologists, it's not part of the first-line treatment. Medications are first-line treatment, whether it be SSRIs or something else. Um, and so from a bigger perspective, I have an interest in um, making exercise more of a, a first-line treatment. Specific to the stroke population, there's a lot of reasons why these antidepressant medications are not necessarily um, advantageous. They, some of the side effects include some nausea, dizziness, and so people have already set up some poor balance and mobility issues. Th those can become mm -hmm. problematic. And they're really just not that effective in a lot of people. So um, the idea that aerobic exercise can have a powerful antidepressant benefit, oh, and by the way, there's a there's all these benefits to cardiovascular like if you function. Need which, a, another reason, right? There you go. You know, the cardiovascular function, which oh by the way, these folks have had a stroke. Which yeah, is a cardiovascular so they need issue. this aerobic exercise. And if you're if you're using it to improve mobility and fitness and these other. Why do things. you think it's not one of the first lines of action? Is it is that an education thing? Like it's after all, of, the it's not a lot of money. In it. it doesn't sell, right? Um, no, I, I mean I agree. I mean let's be honest. If you look at the percentage of the population that really want to exercise, it's low. Mm -hmm. You know, most people would rather take a, take pill. a pill than exercise. Um, I, I recognize that. Um, I think that's maybe one of the reasons I like CrossFit because there's a community around it. It gets people to come yeah. back more frequently than they would if they just went to a global gym. Yeah. yeah, and you're just sitting on a bike for 30 minutes. Like, yeah. A lot yeah. Of, no one wants to do that. Now, you got to get them in the door first. Yes. So it, it, when you talk to people that come to CrossFit, that's already a little bit yeah. of, a, of a biased group, right? <laughs> for sure. Um, and it's interesting. So it, in the in the research world, we talk about exercise using exercise to treat mobility or to treat depression or to treat anxiety or even addiction. And there's this general mindset. And I think if you ask anybody in the is exposed to popular media in any way, that exercise is good, right? Exercise yeah, works. No it's fun, right? No one's gonna say we should exercise. Yeah. And we also know we should eat better and sleep more and reduce stress and all those other things that I probably eat more. Um, but that. That mindset is in the scientific community too, and I sit on grant review panels, and they'll get exercise proposals, and it's like, well, we know exercise works, and so they immediately kind of get. It's not that they get discarded because of that, but the, the comment that comes next, which is a valid point, is, but people won't do it. Now you could argue people won't take the medication either, um, but people won't stick to regular exercise program because what we do know about at least for aerobic exercise and depression, there's a dose dependency. It's got to be reasonably intense exercise and what pretty does that decent mean? duration. Intense exercise. Yeah, so how is it quantified? Sounds well, pretty scary to me. <laughs> it does. It's not going to be a stroll on the treadmill. It's not going to be, you know, what is maybe given as general advice for people to go walk some. Just um, walk some. Just walk go, a little bit. Go do something, right? Um, it's... It, it is exercise that's going to be sufficient enough to increase aerobic capacity. So you're talking, at least the studies that have been done that show effectiveness, going to be you know, that 60 to 70% of VO2 max kind of intensity. Um, and they've done, you know, and it's three to five days a week. Um, so it's specific. What's been done is very specific. Um, 
they've quantified it in some really unique ways, but it's, it's pretty specific. Yeah, I think that's also kind of a, a thing we've talked about is how a lot of PTs kind of miss the ball without ever including like intensity in their treatments. And I think from a healthcare standpoint, we're the most likely healthcare provider to get a patient to buy into an exercise program because we probably spend the most time with our patients compared to a nurse, a doctor, a, what mm-hmm. like we're spending way more time, but they're going to trust us that more than any other healthcare provider. So if we can introduce intensity into that, which I feel like is kind of a newer concept in the PT world. For sure. Yeah, it's funny. I, I agree with you. Um, the PTs absolutely should be viewed and are viewed, I think, as the exercise expert within Allied Health. I mean, and again, they're going to spend more time with their patients. Um, you know, the idea of intensity um, is the one thing that plays out in neuro rehab kind of studies, whether they be exercise specifically or some other type of treatment, that intensity is the single variable that tends to continually predict response. Right, and so intensity is something you have to induce or introduce. And when we talk about it, and you guys remember the discussions we've had in the past, some people refer to it as high intensity exercise, and I keep trying to reframe that and go, no, it's appropriate intensity mm-hmm. exercise, because otherwise like it's not going to result in the yeah. adaptations you're looking for. Yeah, like um, what is low intensity? It's like an oxymoron. Yeah. Exactly. It's not intense. That's a good point. That's a great point. Right? <laughs> Moderate uh, intensity. Like yeah. if it is intense, it's because it's high intensity, but then that scares people. But it does. It sounds like a scary thing. Um, so appropriate intensity exercise um, is, is the way to look at it. And I know that there is kind of a stigma around intensity and higher, whatever that means, intensity exercise. But from, from my standpoint, what I've found is like if you challenge a patient – for the most part, if they trust you, they're going to try those things. I think it just falls on like healthcare providers never telling patients that's what they need to do. And a lot of PTs, I think, are scared to push their patients, especially the neuro population, which ironically is like the people that need it the most. Yeah. Because why did they have a stroke? Most likely because cardiovascular, <laughs> they didn't exercise. But then we're super afraid and we're like, well, we're going to get you on the bike for five minutes. <laughs> Because no we don't know what to do. It's a great point. Um, whether it's, at, you know, back at, at MUC, we talk about, even with the faculty that teach the neuro um, content, have, have really gotten to where they preach the idea of intensity. Oh, yeah. And we've talked about it for years. That And there's, I have to acknowledge, in acute care neuro rehab, trust me, there's so many things going on in the patient's life that they have to deal with, right? We're trying to just get them independent and home and functional and can they eat and bathe and, you know, self-manage absolutely that, you know, making sure we get them at 70% of VO2 peak is not really the number one goal. That said, I'm, I'm with you that over time um, we are potentially shortchanging them in terms of their outcomes um, by not getting the appropriate intensity. So when we, when we talk about our research studies back to what we're doing, and we're, we're dealing with folks that are at least six months post-stroke. Um, when I talk to people working in the lab or students or visiting or tours or whatever, my rationale is, look, whoever you're training, in our case, it's someone who's had a stroke or someone who walks into a CrossFit gym, the principles are the same whether they had a stroke six months ago or they're trying to make the Olympic team in a few years, right? If you're talking about having someone who, who walks really slowly, who's had a stroke and they won't walk faster, or someone who runs 
a 10 200 meters and wants to run under a 10 flat, the idea is can you move their body mass from point A to point B quicker? Mm -hmm. And so the way you train them, the principles are the same. It's just a different starting point. Um, and so we tell our folks, look, you know, we want you to fail when we give you something. And Mason and I had this discussion about intensity. The idea of if you know, to know someone's ability level, you have to know where they would fail. And we're that way with our, our stroke participants, just like you would be with somebody in a CrossFit gym. I mean, that's how you know what your lifts are, because you know what you failed at. So you know your highest number, and you base everything off of that. Absolutely. I, I read, you know, something a long time ago that put it in perspective. It says that they define, and again, it's it's their own unique definition, but someone's ability level is, is, that, is that level at which you have a 50% chance of success or failure. And it's a nice way of looking at it, right? So if you know someone's ability level, then you can gauge intensity from there, or you can prescribe your exercise from there. So why are PTs afraid to have their patients fail? Um, there's probably a lot of answers to that. If I, if I go back to the short one first, if I think of like acute care neuro rehab, there's probably some psychology involved in those patients, just trying to help them get back on and get on just track. Just general, like PTs. But if you start, I think... My bias, yes. So in the absence of data, this is what I think. Oh. There we go. Um, I don't think most of them exercise at that in that way themselves. So if you're not used to doing, yeah, if you're not used to doing that yourself, you're not going to feel comfortable trying to teach someone how to do it. Um, whether it's a specific lift or movement, or it's just the idea of intensity, if you're not used to that, you're not going to try to get someone else to. So my own bias. Okay. That was so, a little bit of a setup, I feel like, because you guys It actually me. wasn't, because I was originally asking you about the depression research, and I don't even know if we talked about that. <laughs> like, what bit. are you doing? What is the trial that you're doing with the depression, the stroke? What does a day look like? That's what I want to... Okay, yeah, and that's a... I, I got off on the aerobic exercise I know, part we earlier. Went, we went so, um, I originally had a trial looking at aerobic exercise and the antidepressant benefits. Um, I found some studies that are relatively new, I think now they're about five years old, that showed in a geriatric population that strength training improved depression. Is that the ones symptoms. I sent you? We'll say sure. Hey, no, you were like, oh, send me your lit review, and that was my lit review, so I think okay. I took my references. So, yeah. I'm taking credit. So, how I got into it was <laughs> Hannah's idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. Wait, my money? <laughs> yeah, really, you can get more than a grant. Yeah, um, okay. And, um, previously I had an intervention, uh, that we had tested for improving walking that was a power training intervention. Yeah. Um, and so we're having our stroke participants do high velocity, um, lower extremity exercise. So we're focusing on the speed of the concentric movements. We're doing jumping, we're doing fast walking, we're doing really fast sit to stands and we're giving them weight vests and we're, we're trying to increase the intensity. So we had that intervention. I had a grant to do that in the past. So how did that go? Uh, we saw, I mean, we had positive findings. I mean, all our hypotheses were, were supported. We showed significant increases in gait speed. We smoked, we absolutely showed increases in strength and muscle mass and those sorts of deals. It was a positive finding. So once I saw the articles that you were referring yeah. to that you sent me, <laughs> I said, look, why don't we take this power training intervention and see so if it has the antidepressant benefits that these studies in geriatrics have shown. So that's the grant right now is using power training for folks with post-stroke depression. Um, and so they have to meet clinical criteria for depression, for major depressive disorder. Um, and I've had a stroke at least six months prior, and that puts, makes them eligible for the study. It's actually, and not to get too much, you know, I get nerdy out on the science part of it, 
the interesting thing about depression is, as you guys went through PT school, and I think we talked about this, we throw around this idea of neuroplasticity, right? We, it's, a, it's a nice, fancy-sounding word, and I don't know that it really has a meaning in and of itself. Right. Um, but it is, it is what we kind of conceptually yeah. <laughs> say that PT is based on, right? This idea that we can make changes in, the, yes. in, in, in tissues. There's, there's a mindset, there's a lot of literature that suggests that depression um, is actually a state that limits neuroplasticity. For those of us that really don't know anything about depression, we think of it as a mood disorder. Oh, this person is sad. Um, and that's, that's not it, really, at all. If you, if you get in and if you talk to some people, psychiatrists and psychologists that, that study depression, they'll tell you it's, it's something very different. Um, and the literature that exists in some animal, all through humans, suggests that folks who are depressed just don't respond as well to treatment. It can be physical treatment, like PT, in those who aren't depressed. So if you can use a exercise intervention like we're talking about, which is known to have antidepressant benefits, oh, it also tries to take advantage of this concept of neuroplasticity to improve functional outcomes, um, do you see an even greater benefit? So there's two questions. Number one, does depression limit response to rehab? And you would test that by saying, do depressed and non-depressed folks respond differently to the same treatment? And do improvements in depression predict improvements in functional behavior? Meaning if you, can, if you can effectively treat the depression, then do those patients start to get better? All of that, does, how does that relevant to PTs? Well, I, I mentioned I've got this bias towards overall using exercise to kind of improve outcomes. But in any clinical cohort, whether you're talking about stroke and cord injury, we can all assume, but back pain, knee replacement, there are much higher rates of depression than there are in non-clinical cohorts or at least otherwise. Um, so how do you as a PT deal with treating a patient who may also be depressed? If that depression is going to limit the effectiveness of your treatment, how would you go about addressing that? Um, big picture, I would love it if PTs and mental health professionals could work together, right? So if you have a patient that you can do some screenings for and decide they're depressed, can you have a mental health professional, whether it be a psychologist or psychiatrist, concurrently treat that depression that may, if but they can help medication with it. or with medication? However, okay. you know, it may be a multifaceted approach, yeah. right? Um, if it's going to improve the outcomes of your treatment and their, your patient's functional performance and their independence, then that's beneficial. At the same time, if a psychiatrist or psychologist has a patient who is depressed, why could they not also reach out to you as a PT and say, can you prescribe a, an appropriate exercise mm -hmm. intervention for my patient? While I'm concurrently treating them with either medication or, you know, CBT yeah. or whatever it may be. Um, and so that would be a great kind of partnership in my mind. But those are those are two, you know, healthcare groups that probably are as, as separated as any two but you But they imagine. really should be the closest ones. You know, I don't know. People don't look at it like that, though. People look at it like, oh, you're depressed, like you should just go work out. But like the hardest people to get to work out are the people that are depressed, and then they will respond the least to that said working out. It's yeah, you make a great point. So when we're talking about recruiting for this study, people go, oh, there's all these people around who've had a stroke, and South Carolina is kind of the epicenter for, for stroke prevalence. <laughs> yeah. And if and if a third of those folks are depressed, people go, and well, why is it? You know, why can't you find any participants? I was you like, because if they're depressed, it. they're not out knocking on doors yeah, looking for research studies. Like, oh, I want to participate in research right. 30 minutes away from let, you. Let me see what else I can get involved with. You know? yeah. uh, so, yes, yeah. you, you make a great point there. So how do we get those folks involved? And 
it might have to be through the mental health professionals that are treating you for depression. Like have them refer to us. It'd be great if it could work that way. But I asked one of the psychiatrists at MUSC, I said, you know, why have you ever thought about prescribing PT for your patients? And he said, well, no, it never occurred to me because in their training, I mean, in their defense, when they go through training for psychiatry, PT is not part of what they're taught about, right? Yeah, I mean, if people they think that PT is like, oh, if you have an orthopedic injury, you go Orthopedics and neurology, yeah. right? Maybe geriatrics. Why are we just called like exercise therapists? That's what we do. Exercise is physical. Or just life coaches. Because we, I feel like, yeah, we also do like physical therapy, but it's very mental. So why are we not with the mental health? Because we refer to mental health. Like, I've referred someone to a mental health professional. So. That's probably unique, then, if you were able to pick up on that. I don't know that most PTs make that part of their typical practice. I definitely uh, have also, but... But yeah, that is not probably as frequent. I would like to see it. I mean, it could work both ways. I mean, it seems like it'd be a mutually mutually beneficial relationship. Changing the narrative. I mean, we talk about the patient, like looking at the patient from a whole, like multifaceted, holistic, blah, blah, blah. So if we don't look at where they are mentally, like it doesn't matter if they're coming in to see us three times a week and what we're needling them. Like it just doesn't, it's not going to change anything. So I want to kind of make a segue. I know that you have a lot of strong opinions about things. And there's some specific topics that I know you like to talk about or myths you like to bust. So we're just going to quickly run through some of them. So one of the first ones I wanted to ask you is about um, stretching. We called you a stretching You're fanatic. Infamously right. known Sarcastically. stretching. Um, so as PTs, what we do is basically we stretch everyone, right? That's, some, that's our job. I heard this quote today, you can never stretch someone too much. <laughs> And I, I just didn't say anything, actually. Part of my soul died. I was pretty proud of myself. I just kind of screamed internally. So I, um, I, my favorite lecture to give every year is one that I entitled Stretching is Bad. Um, it, still bothers, oh, well. it still bothers other faculty members at MUSC. Um, Good. I hope it does, honestly. And it probably is a bit of a argument of convenience. I mean, you're proving a point. I, I, I intentionally am trying to be controversial yeah. to get back to a point. Um, the stretching is bad portion comes from, it's like anything with in terms of exercise. Why are we doing what we're doing, right? If you're treating a patient, I mean, how many times did you have, you know, one of your PT, you know, professors go, well, why are you doing that? Or a CI or anybody else, right? Have a reason for what you do. The idea of stretching or static stretching prior to some sort of performance activity is absolutely illogical. Ill and and it's the idea that or the, the fact that static stretching can impair performance is supported by as many research studies as you want to go find. That said, static stretching prior to trying to perform, you know, whether you're talking about jump height, sprint speed, running economy static strength, it's all, you know, performance is impaired by static stretching. So I say stretching is bad, and I have data to support that. And I also ask the class, every year, why do people stretch? And the number one thing they come up with is injury prevention. And, people still say that. Well, it, it just seems like that's what it would be, well, right? Like, Make sure you stretch before you work out. And it is common practice. I hear people say it all the time. And anybody who wants to can just type it into Google, and we'll find out that... Livestrong.com. 
Yeah, they're every, but ten you, stretches to do before you do a before single you do spot. But Google, you know, or ask Siri if you don't even want to pick up a computer. Ask Siri Alexa? if if stretching <laughs> reduces injury rates, and it's overwhelmingly no. It absolutely <laughs> does not. Now that said, my little caveat to that is in individuals that have a normal range of motion, absolutely you can improve range of motion by hitting the limits of your range of motion. If that's stretching, that's what we're talking about. But yes. not before exercise. Correct. So where I try to end that lecture is, look, if you look at exercise guidelines put out by anybody, any governing body, right, medical, sports, whatever it may be, it will include strengthening, you know, cardiovascular and either flexibility or range of motion exercise, whatever they call it, you know, a certain number of times per week. It doesn't say strengthening cardiovascular exercise preceded by stretching, right? It, it talks about them as three different forms of exercise. I firmly believe if you're trying to increase range of motion, that stretching and flexibility exercises are things that are done. They're done with an intensity. They're done with a progression over time to achieve a certain goal, right? Um, it isn't do them before I go compete. Or if I to go prevent try to you from pulling a hamstring. Like, I it's think we that. have started the conversation about injury prevention isn't a thing. You can go watch Steffi Cohen's videos. But we've really, like, combated the idea that stretching is not going to prevent injury. Like, the re like what you said, that students are like, oh, injury prevention. Like, that's not why we stretch. But when you say stretching is bad for you, it, it perks everyone's ears up, and they're like, oh, stretching doesn't work. They get very defensive, motion, right. blah, blah, blah. But what if my patient doesn't have, like, full because range? Because it's one of those things, like, we've, you know, by the time you hit PT school, you've got 22-plus years of life where people have, and if you've been an athlete, they've always told you to go stretch and go do this. And you can still watch. I see it more in basketball games than anything. You watch the NBA and you see a guy laying on his back and having some trainer stretch, just push their leg back behind their head. It's like, we're still doing it, you know. Um, and these are people at the, the professional level, like the right? Yeah. There's the peak of it. And so you're, as I stand there and say it, and someone's going, but for 20-something years, people have been telling me that stretching is what you that should do. That doesn't make it right. And it, you know, but it, it does have that, con conceptually, we can all relate to it, right? When you see if someone's foot slips and they almost go into a split kind of position, it does make sense that if they were had a Prepared. more range of motion than the you know than a hamstring or an adductor or something wouldn't get strained like it seems to. It just doesn't. But you're also way. not going to get that range of motion right before the event. It's not like just because you had some guy crank on your leg for 30 seconds that your leg is prepared <laughs> to go into that position by itself. So you're not going to get along just great. See, you <laughs> have the same mindset about it. It does, but you're right. When you really think about what's going on, it doesn't make sense. I think the reality is like, no one says stretching doesn't feel good. Like I think we all agree an upper trap stretch, like a hamstring stretch, it feels good. Your brain likes it. And so people think that it's going to help you perform better because if I stretch my hamstrings before I deadlift, like I'm like, Oh, well my hamstrings, like I feel warm because I've like desensitized myself to that stretch. So therefore, you're not actually creating any changes. Exactly. Now, I, like I said, I always preface that lecture with, you know, in folks that have a normal range of motion or doing some sort of mobility work to help you achieve a certain position is different, right? If you talk about something that taxes mobility, it's sort of, you know, an overhead squat, right? You, 
some people have to do some things to start to achieve these positions, you know, and then fine. But I but think, that's there's, not a, I think there's a difference between position work and stretching. And I agree. I that and people don't differentiate. And that's where I try to get to at the end of that lecture. That look, you know, to achieve a position is one thing, or to increase range of motion because it is insufficient, you know, whether it be dorsiflexion or whatever for stance. Yes, it can absolutely benefit that. But it, it's kind of like a lot of things. Is we've, we've gone with the little is good, more must be better kind of approach to it. And it may not always hold true. All right, next one. Um, lifting heavy isn't good for you. I'd be really in trouble if that were the case. <laughs> right? Oh, gosh. Relative Two standpoint. hours of lifting heavy later. Yeah. Um, Who says that? Who says that? Oh, everyone. Oh, there's so Don't much Don't even load yeah. it. There's so many PTs that are like, you can't load it. Well, so I'm going to I'm gonna really give it one that just makes my head want to explode. Okay. It's, I don't want to get bigger. I just want to tone. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. That's define yeah. tone. Usually I say, you if you tone? say that word, that T word again, uh, you know, don't ever come just around. Just like, so you know, I've been trying to get bigger for a really long time. It's very difficult. I'll so have you know. You, you, you take my response and that's what I say. So when I hear that, it's not always, it's often from females that say it. And my response is usually, yes, but look around you. Every guy you see has been trying for as long as they can remember to get bigger. <laughs> and it's not working for them, so I think you're <laughs> And all they're doing is getting, quote, unquote. I've been trying to do this for 30 years, and I'm, you know, this is all I got, so you'll be fine. You won't get bigger from one workout. Yeah, like, why do girls think that they're the ones that are going to get bigger? I was like, I'm yes. like, I want to be bigger. Like, why do you think you're going to get bigger than me? Like, yeah. you don't know that. Yeah. like. And, and if no. anything, all those guys have some advantage from this idea of some, you know, androgenic kind of things that circulate around. They should be an advantage when they like, can get bigger. I mean, just imagine if the more you lifted, the bigger, like, literally, like, you just keep, like, you're not going to, it's going to stop. Like, imagine if this guy just, like, kept getting bigger. Like, every time he added a plate. He just got bigger that's and right. bigger and, and bigger. Like, that's just not Think what we works. would all look like, right? Maniacs. Um, and so, yeah, I don't want to lift heavy. You know, but whether that it's, is, like, the thing physical therapists do, too, with their patients is they they're don't afraid push of them. loading them heavy. It they is. think that they think it's going to injure them. And if yeah. you do it properly and progressive, like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to throw 250 pounds on my 90-year-old back squat. I mean, unless they can do it. Yeah. But, like, the first I'm time she ever backs, yeah, I mean, for sure. I'd give her a few warm-ups. I mean, give her a couple we'll weeks eat. and then we'll do it. <laughs> um, no, I mean, but, but it, it, it comes back to what you talk, we talked about earlier, the idea of appropriate intensity, right? So I remember uh, this was back when I was in grad school. The, the girl that ran the weight room, she said, well, yes. I don't I, – I, I, she was talking about bench pressing. She said, well, but someone told me that if I, uh, if I put the 45-pound plates on there that I'll be getting bigger. I was like, <laughs> so – you mean if you had 35s and 10s on there, you won't you're get fine. bigger? And it was just <laughs> If you have the 35s and 10s, <laughs> you get toned. So, and then when you add the 45s, you're going to get right. bigger. Right. So the two of you Put know me. You can probably imagine the look on my face. Did, did you and, roll your eyes so hard? I think they rolled around twice. Well, there's so much in that statement. There's, there's so much. The girl doesn't want to be bigger. The girl thinks this is the, the thing that is going bad. to get her bigger. It's just so many different things. There's so many. Yeah, it's like, look, I've been trying to, I mean... I've had, those, four, I've had those 45-pound plates on there for a long time. And, and trust me, I haven't gotten any And I'm, I'm standing in front of you <laughs> looking like that the bigger. secret? Because I need to start doing that, apparently. I know. Um, the you know, so again, why are you doing what you do? If you want to get stronger, you've, you've, you've got to load, right? And you've got to have enough weight on there for what's difficult. So is there – you can't put a number on that. What's – 100 pounds is, you know, is that heavy or light? People always talk about it. Well, it depends, right? It's, it's, it's really light for – 
you know, a deadlift, but it's pretty heavy for a bicep curl. It's not that I do a lot of bicep curls. Pretty heavy <laughs> bicep curl. Well, um, you're not trying to get bigger. That's why you're well, not doing bicep curls. I'm trying curls. to tone. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, always, I always say, too, which I don't know how you'll feel about this from an evidence standpoint, but I say most, probably all, but most of what we do is theoretical. Like, there's no treatment we do that you can say, I am doing this and it is immediately causing this, besides loading. We do know for a fact like, if you load, you will get stronger. Like, hypertrophy as a concept is proven. And I think a lot of the therapeutic methods we use, there's, like, we don't know for fact what it's doing. Like, triangling, mobilizations, even a lot of, like, exercises. I'm like, we don't know that. But, like, if you add load, you will get stronger. And I feel like that's the only thing we know for fact we should for sure be using that in all of our treatments. But what if people don't think getting stronger is what's going to fix it. Because what if people think that's not the problem is weakness, which we know is mostly the problem. You want to correct. We can address weakness. We know how to make people stronger and we know how to to improve cardiovascular fitness, aerobic capacity, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to refer to, right? We can train the heart, cardiac muscle. We can train skeletal muscle. We know how to make those muscles function better. Um, it is, it is less established how these other treatments, what they're doing and what effects they have. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting to me, um, you know, back we were talking about the idea of the power training and the intensity. I remember talking to the guy who's my boss 10 years ago when I was developing this power training thing. I said, look, if I went to a, you know, an ACSM, which is American College of Sports Medicine, if I went to a sports medicine conference and said, hey, if you do high velocity, high intensity, which intensity our cases is load, you know, resistive exercise, you can make folks stronger, you can increase lower extremity power, and you can increase performance, which for us is walking. And if I said that at a sports medicine conference, they'd go, thanks, buddy, we've known that for yeah, 40 years. Yeah, like your point. But if you take it and take, go to a PT conference and go to neuro rehab, it's, oh my God. It's, it's innovative and it's cutting edge. And it, it is, it's, it's a very different mindset because not even that long ago, there was this mindset that in neuro rehab, that anything of intensity would increase spasticity. Oh, spasticity yeah. is, is the all bad, the evil. We, we've got to stay away from, right? So they didn't do anything high intensity for fear that it increased spasticity. Which, for listeners, that was sarcastic. Spasticity isn't right. the evil. Sorry. Yeah, some people don't know. No, that, that's a great point. I didn't know until maybe six months um, ago. And but it, we it, now know that that's not the case. We know that it's yeah. not true. And my point was, there was supposedly a rationale for avoiding high intensity. Now, that said, once those kind of things are established, it's really hard to break away from them, right? Even when the research is starting to show that this doesn't happen, it takes a while for those things to really permeate through clinical practice, right? Um, So that was a battle that was being fought, at least in the neuro side. Um, You know, the loading side, I, I still come back to, I think it's because of a lack of comfort and lack of familiarity from the person who's, you know, doing the treatments. So if they're not comfortable lifting and loading, then they're not going to you know, prescribe a lot. And, you know, I, I would even take that to CrossFit gyms. You guys travel around. You know, when you go to a CrossFit gym, you know, the, the programming in a gym takes on the personality of the owner, the person doing the programming, right? You'll go to some that are very barbell-centric, right? You'll go to some that are very bodyweight-centric and rarely do barbells because they're owned by people who are triathletes and cyclists, and mm-hmm. they've got a very different mindset for programming. I would argue those people are probably less comfortable with the barbell lifts and the barbell folks are less comfortable with the running or the gymnastics or whatever. So it's still, 
it's still we we're gonna we're gonna default to where our comfort level is. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to teach someone how to shoot a basketball because I would be probably bad at that. But be, I went into physical therapy because I know how to exercise and I can teach people that because I know how to do it and I regularly do it. What I question is those people that I'm like, why are you here? What did you think physical therapy was if you don't do anything yourself? But that's, I think, because it's not Easton. It's not ultrasound. I pack ultrasound massage. It's not traction. Like, it's and on exercise. A, on, this is totally not evidence-based, but on a personal level, I would argue that majority, at least I would say of my patients' pain is a result of them being weak in a certain place. Like, if they just got stronger, their pain would be less. And I think that's, like, a hard thing for people to wrap their mind around that, like, we're not treating the pain. I'm just going to yeah. make you stronger, and then the pain's going to go away. Well, it's like the load capacity thing. Why did you have pain? Because your tissues don't have the capacity because yeah, your load just exceeded your capacity. You know, so from a, from a clinical standpoint, you are you – know, patients come to you with all kinds of variety of experiences or inexperiences. If patients have no experience with exercise or competition, were never athletic, never moved a lot, they're going to be uncomfortable with that approach, right? And they'll default more to the type of therapist that will not make them do yeah. intense movements. On the contrary, you're going to have a lot of patients who were athletic and maybe competed at very high levels. They're, if they went to a therapist who didn't treat them and force them to do things intensely, they're going to not be satisfied with that treatment. And that's, I think, the patient population you guys get a lot of. Okay, I went to, I hate to say the word traditional PT because that's so some misnomer. That there's, there's no something that's not true. They went to a PT that didn't necessarily use exercise as a, as a fundamental portion of their practice. And these people just aren't getting better. They don't feel like they're being pushed to improve like they have been in, the, you know, in their past experiences as, as athletes. And they just, they think they understand why the therapy was ineffective. Um, and so they are seeking out someone who will train them, treat them, and help them get better like people have in the past when they were competing at a high level. When mm -hmm. they want to get back to exercise, not the, the people that have never exercised mm -hmm. who we are just introducing exercise. Yes. So they want to get back to exercising like they were. They also have a history of exercise helping them get better yeah. and recover from injuries. So they, they know what they're seeking out and they're not getting it. Um, and so that's, you know, as a PT, you'll have this huge range of patient experiences. Oh, before we do Spitfire. So as a, I don't know, person, professor, researcher. Healthcare provider. What would donut you- Donut eater. Your, yes, donut eater, lover of six minute workouts and <sighs> stretching fanatic. What is your biggest strength? My biggest strength is what are we talking about as a not your highest lift, like highest your lift. biggest strength as a human, and then we can wow. go into the lift. That's deep. <laughs> I know, right? It took a turn. <laughs> See, I was hoping to fall to either donuts or not stretching. I don't. That sounds very shallow. Let's, let's go as like as a healthcare provider. Yeah, I feel like you can in your professional world. Um. Maybe where I have gotten the most benefit and think it, it has helped me professionally is um, I tend to question everything. Really? I would never know so that. Skeptical. It's funny yeah. that yeah, you... Yeah, skepticism. Yeah, a healthy amount of skepticism yeah. is, is maybe... All right, and what is your weakness? Um, wow, that's going to be a long list. Not the donuts and stretching thing again. <laughs> um, just one, just one. Um, 
biggest weakness, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily as politically correct as I should be in maybe groups and discussions. It's um, why we love you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, the like-mindedness. No, I, I mean, if you look back, the guy who, I, I, when I told the story of getting to grad school, he absolutely said what was on his mind, and if you didn't like it, that's okay. You wasn't offended. I'm not offended. I, I, I tend to migrate to those personalities. I probably um, adopted some of those. Yeah, exactly. That it's not my fault. Um, but I also recognize that I need to be better at being more open-minded to someone with different opinions. I could. They can still be wrong. I'll just be open-minded just to it. Just open it for like five seconds and then close Right. I just, I'll right. act like I'm. Oh, one more question. What are you passionate about? Uh, well, I've got two sons, so my family for sure. Um, How old are your sons? Oh, uh, my sons are 15 and 12. What an age. And they are athletes. Yeah, oh, I'm yeah. sure. Um, they are, they are, yeah, so my training goals right now are just... Beat um, my son. Trying to continue to beat my son. What a oh, sad thing. They have a very competitive oh, relationship. It's um, hilarious. And my days are short-lived in doing that, um, but it's fun to watch them do this sort of stuff and they've gotten into doing some of the crossfit you know activities and come to crossfit gyms and they love the movements and that sort of thing so we talked about this like in everyone but like the generation that is like your kids and younger they're gonna be freak athletes like if we started crossfit when we were when 12, I was 12 like oh, I, I mean i, I was out hope. there doing kipping pull-ups i'm like wow like i hope to think if i started at 12 i'd be better maybe not but like <laughs> you never really know but no but that yeah. thing you hadn't seen it right Kids yeah. are just naturally curious. They want to try something. If they see somebody do something cool, well, and well, they, I want to try it. They're not embarrassed, you know, and they're like, well, I'm going to try that. Their joints like, are still perfect. Yeah, but it's like, okay. Our joints are fine. I mean, yeah. not that I necessarily could have done one, but I never saw anybody do a green muscle up when I was yeah. 14 years old. Yeah. And then my, well, he's 15 now. When you're now. a kid, you mimic. Yeah. Exactly. He mimicked. He like, walked into the gym. He it's walked like into the gym and tried it and he did it. I was like, you have no clue how many people hate you oh, right no. now. Yeah, Drew can do a muscle up. It's impressive. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just, yeah, all the rest of us just are envious it's just like our the way goal kids move. For the year. Yeah. Okay, so we have some fast questions, so here we go. All right. First thing that comes to your mind. Favorite breakfast? Donuts. Favorite donut? Oh, glazed and crispy cream. Favorite workout? Linda. Which is? It's the, yeah, I think Ew, that's, that's a horrible Okay, wait, 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 what is it? It's actually 10 down to one of one and a half body weight deadlift. Body weight bench press, oh. three quarter body weight squat clean. Oh it's horrible. Okay, it's least crazy. favorite workout that. Least anything with running. Okay, favorite movement. Uh, probably a snatch. Squat or power? Well, I'm talking about squat, full okay. snatch, just okay. for, for load. Least favorite movement. I think you already kind of said it. Burpee, rowing, wall ball. Cardio. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> What's your favorite song or music to work out to? Um, I still like 90s rock music. Band. What band? Uh, it could be ACDC. Okay. Yeah. High jump record. 6'8". Uh, You're talking about me? Yeah. Yes. My highest jump is 6'8". That's flop. That's not a box jump for you people listening. That's, that's over a bar and, you know, under the mat. I know, I'm trying to picture it. Yeah, but see, that it sounds great, but when you got to what the collegiate in level, inches? in inches, I guess 12. that's 80 inches, right? Six feet is 72 inches, we'll yeah. say. What but you understand, that's not a very good high jump for a collegiate high jumper. 
Yeah, but you're also... You're not a collegiate high jumper right now. I will not write... Oh, wait, that was... Okay. That was back then. Okay, what about now? What are you hitting nowadays? Well, I don't high jump much. (laughs) I don't have max. Well, can you box jump right now? Um, Yeah. A few weeks ago, I still did a 55-inch box jump. Casual. Okay. First, and, that, and I, I'm just, and that's you, you have to okay. stand still to do it. No running up the box jump. Yeah, that's no, cheating. for sure. First CrossFit workout. Do you remember? I do. Um, it wasn't a named one, and it was a humbling experience. It had um, the dumbbell burpee um, kind of deals where you came down on the dumbbells and, then and had to and then to press them. Devils presses. Yes. Like man makers. Man makers. Yeah. Oh, man Robert makers. loves man makers. It had man makers and a 400 meter run, and there was a lady that did it with me who still comes to the CrossFit gym. Um, we're good friends. She's the same age. She's very, very thin and very fit. And I remember thinking, okay, I've got to work out with this, you know, 40-ish year old woman who doesn't look very strong, and you know, and, she, and she just demolished me <laughs> in the workout. That's the best. There are so many times that I get humbled, but that is still the story I tell, and we're still That's good friends amazing. to this day that she humbled So me. I'll go ahead and count that as your embarrassing moment in the gym. Oh, I went embarrassed. It was just, that happens on a regular basis. My embarrassing moment in the gym is I got lapped in a three-round workout one time. In a three-rounder? What, like, how, what was the workout? Oh, something nasty, and I think it was her name, but it was a, I think it was a, it was either four 800-meter run, and 30... Either squat cleans or thirty thrusters oh, that each round. So fun. Yeah, that sounds um, awesome. And yes, and, and in fairness to me, I came in second place. Oh. But I got lapped by someone in a three round. Okay. All right. So I have a couple serious questions to end on, and then we'll oh, be done. Okay. Um, I have to put our plug in. Um, what is your opinion of how PTs and CrossFit can kind of blend the world? Um, just the idea that you know, I think CrossFit gets labeled as a thing. CrossFit is exercise, right? And it's all different types of exercise. And if we can accept that exercise is good, again, I think that's something we all would generally agree on, that if, if, if healthcare providers, and that includes PTs, would recognize the advantage of regular structured exercise from people who know what they're doing, I think it can improve their practice area. At the same time, there are injuries that happen in life, right? It has nothing to do with CrossFit. It's just... Things happen. Um, And being able to use the appropriate rehabilitation professionals um, in any type of injury, I think, is something that CrossFit gyms should be able to offer to their members. And so I think if the two accept the benefits and limitations of each, they can work well together. All right, lastly, if you had to give one piece of advice to, like, an up-and-coming PT healthcare provider in general, what would you tell them? Um, I think just this idea that what, um, you probably picture as your job as a PT, this typical idea of what a PT is, is not what you're locked into. You can make your, your profession anything you want and your job, your day can involve, um, you know, different aspects, whether it be, you know, treating specifically athletes or treating neuro or doing a cash-based PT or working in a traditional PT. We're doing not, it all. Or doing it all. Same day. You're not locked <laughs> into just this stereotype of what PT has always been. I love so that. So explore that's... the other options. When I was, like, kind of down about being a PT, and that's and I realized that is when I was, like, excited to be a PT again. That, like, you can do – you can make of it whatever you want out of it, and that's why it's so great. So – 
Um, well, I was going to say tell our followers where they can find you, but just the MUSC Chipsy building. I, I don't know if you have an Instagram or like anything like that. I do, but, but I don't know what it is. I don't know if you should tell people, honestly. I only do it so I can follow and see what my kids are up to. That's good, how I have it good. for. <laughs> All right. So if you're listening, make sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review and see you in the next box.